Well, here we are on Palm Sunday. Of course, it's the day of the year when we celebrate Christ's triumphal procession into Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The triumphal procession is a picture. It's really a parable of so much else, as is everything in Christ's life. And it can give us a strong dose of hope at times like these, the hope that comes from knowing that he's Lord of all, who's always marching in triumphal procession, just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, whose truth to this day is marching on. Back then, he marched in to cleanse the temple, which really is the very picture of what often happens when he comes. He's marching into this day to cleanse not only his people, but the nations. We saw that in Romans 1 and 2, that he disciplines the nations for their good. He's come to do this again and again down through history to turn them to him. The scripture calls it his glory. Yeah, the glory of the coming of the Lord, who's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, just like we sing, who has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Our God is marching on. We saw that when this happens, in Romans 1 and 2, you see pictures of him everywhere apocalyptic signs of his coming because apocalypse means a revelation and so when it happens you see pictures of him everywhere in small and in big ways and these days there is so much to see even when it comes to uh, the name of what afflicts us which is just the tip of the iceberg of what this apocalypse is saying Two weeks ago, we saw that the corona means the outer part of the sun's atmosphere. They named it this because the um, electron microscope underneath it, each one of these virons, uh, as they call them, is surrounded by a corona or a halo, just like the sun. But not just any sun. No, it's a novel coronavirus, as they keep calling it, one that's unlike any other. And there's a lesson there. It's a picture of the one who's unlike any other. The scripture compares the Son of God again and again to the Son, S-U-N, and to fire. So much so that in the mystery of his sovereignty, the coronavirus, as we saw, becomes his corona fire to burn away our impurities, to purge us of our idolatries, to shine the light on our many iniquities, to bring us to our knees. Like David prayed that he would in Psalm 8, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, he says. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations be judged before you. Let the nations know that they are but men. And speaking of kings and nations and triumphal processions, the word corona also means crown. And there's a lesson there too, because these virons are servants of the crown, capital C. Crowned with corona fire, they're pictures of how he's furthering his rule. They tell us that he's sovereign down to each and every viron, each and every atom, which should move us to further his agenda here, and that is to bend the knee to the, the novel Lord we serve and to crown him Lord of all in all areas of our lives. These days, we would do well to start relating to him, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord.
not just as our best friend, but as a sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom we must humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways. We'll be going to our knees together this week on Good Friday. Some of you know about this. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church and many other denominations have designated it uh, this Good Friday a day of prayer and fasting in sackcloth and ashes before Him. It will involve one to two million Christians. I'll share more about this early next week. But for now, why pray and fast? Well, a lot of it has to do with His discipline. With His discipline. In, uh, we see this in Second Chronicles 7. Verse 14 is the famous one, but it's inseparable from verse 13 where he says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I should send a plague. If I should send a plague among my people, and then the famous verse, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal the land. The triumphal procession and what happened then after it was a prediction that put his people on notice. But they failed to humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways after he cleansed the temple. No, they crucified him. And his judgment came 40 years later in 70 AD when he used the, Roman, uh, the Romans to level Jerusalem and the temple because he's Lord even over Roman legions. There's so much more, but what happened then uh, and what happened in Jerusalem 40 years earlier is a powerful picture that through it all, the Lord of all is marching on in triumphal procession for those who have eyes to see. Yes, he comes in humility uh, and obscurity and on the foal uh, of a donkey, but the day comes when he intervenes as the Lord God Almighty, just as he did back then. We're going to see today that indeed the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns, present tense, as it says in Revelation 19. As David said, he is the great king over all the earth, Psalm 47, 2. He reigns over the nations, Psalm 47, 8, and over the virants. Oh, crown him with many crowns. None of this is random because he is sovereign. And I know of no better way to stir our faith and to center our minds and to uh, ground our hearts at times like these than to take our eyes off of whatever may happen and to focus on him, to focus on the uh, invisible reality that surrounds us, one that's more real than what we can see. What we need is what happened to Elijah's servant in 2 Kings 6. Remember the story? It says that King Ahab had sent horses and chariots and a great army to seize Elijah and his servants. And they came to the city of Dothan where they lived. And the whole army surrounded them, just like a plague surrounds us. And so Elijah's servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Many are saying that these days. But he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. 
And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around them. To which we can only say, O Lord, open our eyes that we may see. Because when you're going through a cataclysm, more than anything, you need for him to be your vision. Just like we sing, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me. I'll let go of anything, save that thou art. And then, High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heavens. There it is, sun, S-U-N. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. It's like Bob Redfield shared at our transition team meeting this week. He said, and I wrote it down, we tend to focus on our trials at times like these, but we need to get our eyes off our trials and on to God, which is what we'll be doing today. What happened in Jerusalem foreshadows what we see in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, when John had a vision of another a triumphal procession, it's the last one the final time that he will come to discipline the nations. John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The heavenly choirs actually heralded all this back in verse 1 of chapter 19. When John heard the voice, he says, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, this is the commentary on it. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just. They are glorying in the judgments of God. And then again in verse 6, John says, I heard the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give glory to him, for he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Glory, glory, hallelujah. What do we most need at times like these? What do we most need to see in our vision? That the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. And he's doing it right now that the King of Kings is Lord of all. What it says about Christ here at the end of Revelation goes all the way back to the beginning of Revelation, to what John says about him there in Revelation 1. And what he says about Christ covers everything that's in between because this is the vision, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
What he says about Christ in Revelation 19 is a banner over the apocalypse that we call the book of Revelation, that he's king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 1.5 calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth. And how does he rule? Well, in Revelation 2.1, it tells us one way. It says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. This means that he's the master of the stars, sovereign over them. He's the master of the angelic hosts. These stars stand for the complete number, seven's the number of completion, of the angelic principalities and powers in the heavenly places that accomplish so much of his work on earth, of his reign and rule. It says he holds them. This is an emphatic form of the verb for hold in the Greek, and it means to grasp or to wield like a weapon or like a sword. It's a word that makes Christ's sovereign control over the angels more real. It makes it uh, 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 graphically and rhetorically powerful to show that they're at his command. He seizes them. What does it say about him? Well, Seven is the number of completion, and the stars are a generic term for angels. So the seven stars ultimately stand for the complete number of the angelic powers, all of whom are in the palm of his hand. We know that there's a whole hierarchy of heavenly hosts, of angelic powers and authorities, from the angels of children that Christ mentioned in the Gospels to the seven uh, angels of the churches to the seven angels in Revelation at the end who invoke the cataclysms on the nations that he brings, to the mighty angel in Revelation 10 who, uh, who is wrapped in a cloud, it says, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire who called out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. In Daniel 12, we're told that there are angels who stand over earthly regions and uh, heavenly uh, dominions, ones like Gabriel, the archangel, who fought, we know, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which was the demonic principality over Persia, or, or Michael, who Gabriel calls a great prince who stood guard over the nation of Israel. And over all of them would be the four living creatures, the mighty cherubim around the throne of God. We're told their lightning motions, according to Ezekiel, conjure up the throne of heaven on earth. The very presence of God is what they conjure wherever they go. And it says their wings are like the sound of many waters, Ezekiel 124, like the voice of the Almighty. And the sound of their tumult is like the voice of an army. Whoa. And under them are descending orders, a hierarchy of heavenly bodies, rank after rank, file after file, myriads upon myriads, down to the guardian angels of churches and even uh, of children. And here in chapter 2, uh, John calls them stars because like the stars of the heaven, you can't count them. And it says that he's got their complete number in his right hand. From the dwarf stars, you might say, to the angelic giants, they're at his command. We don't know much about angels, and that's on purpose, because they're truly godlike beings, and we'd likely get far too fascinated with them. John sure did. We might even worship him, which is exactly what John, none other than the Apostle John did. He was with one of the seven mighty angels in Revelation 19, one of the seven that brought the judgment of God on the nations. And he says, I fell at my feet 
to worship him. And the angel said, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours. I'm, though mighty though I am, I'm a fellow servant of him. Worship him, worship God, he says. My point is this. These are awesome beings. When the archangel Michael appeared to Daniel, it almost did him in. He said, how can such a servant as I even talk to such as you? Yet as great and as mighty they may be, there is another being of a completely different uh, order of being, the highest of all the orders by far, who is far above every throne and dominion and ruler and authority, both in the heavens and on the earth, Colossians 1.16, who sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3, having been made as much better than the angels. For to which of the angels did God say, Thou art my beloved Son? Let all the angels of God worship Him. That's our king. This is a governmental image in Revelation 2, and it shows us a good part of how, God, uh, of how Christ reigns with the right hand of his power. It's an image that's reinforced by the robe it says he was wearing a chapter earlier in Revelation 1.13, where John saw that he was clothed in a robe reaching to the, uh, to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle, which is a sash that's draped across the shoulder and then around the waist. It was a regal robe, though it's not pompous or boastful or political in the slightest. He's, he's dressed in princely dignity and simplicity. And in chapter 19, verse 16, as we've already read, it says that on this robe, his name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These two names go together that we see in Revelation 2.1. He's the master of the angelic powers in his right hand who, who, who wield power over the nations, these angelic powers, and he is the direct ruler of the nations. How does this happen and what does this say about him? Bear with me because this will be a great comfort. You'll find whatever we go through. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may see. Let me get a running start at it. We'll try to go from a, a distance into his very presence through his word. We have no idea the degree to which human government is a good part <laughs> of the human predicament whether government by dictators or government by the people. Or maybe we do have some idea of it. It's like Ronald Reagan said, his famous words, uh, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to what? <laughs> yeah, to help. Or Mark Twain, suppose you were an idiot and suppose you were a member of Congress, but then I repeat myself. <laughs> uh, that's obviously not true of all of them. There are some noblemen and women in Congress, but, but you could certainly say that about some on both sides of the aisle. Or Will Rogers, I don't make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. Now, we must be quick to say that things would be far worse without any government. And God knows that they, uh, could, be, uh, uh, that they could be far better. That's just the way it is. 
So much so that it was true even under the rule of King Solomon, one of the greatest of all the kings in the history of the world. He said this about his government. If you see oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and righteousness in the province, a province uh, Ecclesiastes 5.8, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are far higher officials over them. We know Solomon struggled with things like that, though he was a righteous king, so it was far better than many of the pagan nations. But he's talking here about levels of bureaucracy that you can be sure drove him crazy. Where you have one deputy, one uh, bureaucrat, one um, administrator after another until it feels like you're pushing a string trying to make anything happen. Just like we're seeing in this crisis. Solomon's saying that we shouldn't be shocked when we see that things in society are not as they ought to be because society is ruled by all these layers of corrupt human government and all manner of depravity and inefficiency and uh, incompetence, uh, incompetency trickles down from the top. And so we don't have nearly enough mass and we're out of respirators and there's no end to it. Not to mention what happens politically and in the case of government by the people, all manner of depravity trickle up from the bottom. Blame the ones that elected them. They just reflect the society. Solomon's saying that the denial of justice, all unrighteousness, comes in good part because of craft, graft and corruption among those who are supposed to govern. And we'll see proof positive of this when he becomes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It'll be during what we call the millennial rule, when the government will rest, according to Isaiah, on his shoulders. Someone said that God will let every form of human government run its course to show that man is incapable of ruling himself. And then he'll come and he'll show us how it's done. It'll happen in what we call the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule of Christ at the end of history. It's what we call the premillennial view of the millennium, that Christ will come, uh, he will return pre, prior to the millennium, and he will rule the earth for a thousand years. Now, some hold to the amillennial view, which teaches that we're in the millennium right now and that he's ruling right now. Biblically, I believe both are true, at least in terms of what they say about Christ. Just like there's a good deal of truth in every view of Revelation, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and you can't possibly exhaust him. No one has the market on him, no one interpretation. On the premillennial view, politically speaking, the only thing that will change when Christ returns to rule the earth uh, for a thousand years will be the uh, administration. He'll, he'll take over from both man and Satan. The curse won't be lifted. That won't happen until the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the world will still be packed with wicked people, and, but he will be at the top. And especially these days, we can take great hope in this. It says, He will reign as king, Jeremiah 23, 5, and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. With righteousness he will judge, Isaiah eleven four, And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Which means that there will be no bribes, no scandals, no, you know, kickbacks, no turf, nor pork, no politics. 
not a single miscarriage of justice. He says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, Malachi 3.5, and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, to those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. He's saying retribution for wrongdoing will be swift, and it will be unerring, and it will be inescapable. War is going to be eliminated as a means for uh, solving international disputes because Isaiah 2.4, he will judge between the nations. In righteousness, he will judge. He will render decisions for many people. All that one would render righteous decisions in the governing authorities around us. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, Isaiah 2.4, and their spears into pruning hooks. And it will all start at the top. The world will stand amazed at the, you know, trickle-down impact of an incorruptible government, so much so that they will call it the millennium. It'll be the best of all the golden ages of human history in one and more. Put them all together and it won't even begin to compare to this. And when the millennium becomes our vision, Wherever you look these days, on every level, in every corner of the world, you'll be reminded of what's coming. You'll be reminded of him. You'll see that there is a king-shaped vacuum that only our king can fill. Because Jesus is the only answer, not only for what ails us personally and spiritually, but for what ails us politically, economically, sociologically, bureaucratically governmentally. All these presidents and prime ministers and senators and statesmen are but just a drop in the bucket next to him. They're, they're midgets in, in shoes the size of canoes by comparison. They hold great offices. They're in God-ordained positions of authority that we need to honor. And for the most part, we're far better off with them than without them. That's called anarchy. But there's someone standing in the wings who shoes all of them together, the best and the brightest from every stage of human history. They are not worthy to untie. Because you combine, say, the, the charisma of a Reagan and the diplomacy of a Henry Kissinger, and the compassion uh, of a Jimmy Carter, and the integrity of a Lincoln, and the honesty of a Washington, and the, say, fearlessness of a Trump. You combine all the strengths that make them, even in the slightest way, worthy of their office, and you'll not even begin to approach the measure of the stature of the only one in the universe, it says in Revelation, who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. The only one who is worthy of our supreme loyalty, the Lord Christ whom we serve, the King of kings and Lord of lords who is Lord of all. That's our King. But even that isn't the half of it. Because while the premillennial view shows us the future, that one day He will reign, so take heart. The amillennial view shows us how we're getting there. It opens our eyes to what's going on right now. 
because our God reigns today. Together, they mean that the King is coming, and they mean that the King is here. The Scripture clearly teaches us this. It, it couldn't be more clear. In Proverbs 8.15, the pre-incarnate Christ says, It is by me that kings reign and that rulers decree justice. In Daniel 2.21, uh, Daniel says that it is him, the Lord God Almighty, who removes and establishes kings. Daniel says, the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, Daniel 4.17, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. And eight verses later, so important is this, in Daniel 4.25, he repeats it. The Most High is the ruler over mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes. You mean that he is sovereign through whoever is in the Oval Office you mean that he is in control from Obama to Trump to wherever it swings into the future? You mean that all is not lost if Republicans don't win? You mean God can work his goodness through wickedness? You mean I don't have to fight like a cornered animal politically? You mean he's working through the chaos that surrounds us through the virus? Yes, 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 and yes. Because the king's heart, Proverbs 2.21, is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Such is his dominion, such is his rule over all, according to Amos, that if calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? By which he means, is not the Lord completely sovereign even through calamity? For I am the Lord God and there is none other, Isaiah 45, 6, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. To which we can only say what David did. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. First Chronicles 29, 11. Only sovereignty of a supreme order could accomplish all that we've seen today. Only the highest authority who is seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion could rule hand in glove through angelic powers and through the kings of all the earth, through every circumstance, through whatever chaos, whatever virus may surround us. Only the one whose sovereignty rules over all, Psalm 103, 19, in whose right hand are the principalities and powers in the heavenlies that stand over the nations, on whose robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, he's unbelievable. He's indescribable. He, he's incomprehensible, but 
He is real. All around us, more real than what we see. And Palm Sunday reflects all this and more because that's our King who's marching on. You know, Dr. S.M. Lockeridge once preached a sermon about this. He uh, pastored Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for 40 years. He preached to well over 100,000 people in his lifetime and lectured at numerous colleges and universities, including the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. He preached a sermon once that's titled, That's My King. It shows that even all that we have seen today isn't even the half of it. And he answers the question that we all ask at one time or another and that we will be asking, like Elijah's servant did, alas, what shall we do? To which we can say, like Elijah, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And if that's true, then we just need to pray like he did, O Lord, I pray. Open our eyes that we may see. Listen. The Bible says, My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Oh, do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. He's the sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He's cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. 
He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him. I wish I could describe him and yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He is invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your head. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, he, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. And I, for one, fall on my knees before him in confession, in contrition, and in adoration. And whatever he does, I say, glory, glory, hallelujah. Is that your king? Well, he can be. Because this king of glory suffered agony when he died on a cross for you. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday, which will be this coming Friday. The death of Christ, the death of the King of Kings for the likes of us. And then on Easter Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection, who's alive today, not just to rule the nations, but to rule from our hearts and to fill our hearts and to ground us no matter what's going on around us. If he's your king, if you've made your peace with him, with a king like that, you can go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us and through us all. Amen.